If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, why not become a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh? Our membership provides you with access to the RCPE educational portal in live evening medical updates, and you have options to view the symposia both in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, please go to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website. Hello and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Trainee and Members Committee. My name's Kat Ralston, I'm a member of the TNMC as well as a Medical Education Fellow and Geriatrics Registrar in Edinburgh. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr Kath Stretton to discuss the important topic of civility in healthcare. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, that's no problem, Kat. Thank you for the invite. First of all, it's a pleasure to have this platform to talk about something that I feel is really important. So I appreciate that. So I'm a consultant anaesthetist. I just CCT'd at the start of November in 2021. So I'm about a year into my role as a consultant. I work at St John's Hospital and I do time in theatres as well as some sessions in ITU during the day. And the kind of main thrust of my CV all the way through my training was an interest in staff experience. And then alongside that, how staff experience can influence the care that our patients are getting. And I did some really interesting things throughout my training. I was a chief registrar in NHS Lothian. I got quite involved in the Learning from Excellence programme, which is centred in Birmingham with Adrian and Emma Plunkett, looking at what we do well in healthcare systems and how we could do it more. And kind of through those links and through the learning that I was afforded with those roles that I played, I've kind of seen increasingly clearly the strength of connection between the parents that our patients receive, the experience that staff have. And I really think that civility is actually the cornerstone of that. And that's why I'm here today is I'm here to share my thoughts and, and I hope that some people listen might agree with me. Thanks so much, Kath. I totally agree. And it's uh, really great to have you on the show today. I thought it might be helpful just to set the scene a bit and talk about a personal experience that I had that I think I could have handled differently and it would be good to maybe pick up on this later in the conversation and see how I could have handled it maybe better. This was a few years ago when I was sort of sitting up for the day in the doctor's office with a few colleagues around me. One of the other staff members came in and started telling off one of the other junior doctors for writing something in the notes that they felt was incorrect. And perhaps it was right that it was incorrect, but the way that it was approached made me feel really uncomfortable. It was very confrontational and came across quite rude. So saying things like, you shouldn't be writing about things that you don't understand. You can't do your job properly. And I could just see the effect that this was having on everyone else in the room, sort of heads going down, people fiddling with paperwork, you know, pretending to do other things. And it just felt intensely uncomfortable. And I remember sort of physically standing up and putting myself in between them to kind of block that line of sight. And then the person sort of being in civil left and I checked with the junior doctor if they were okay and there were some comments in the room well that's just how that member of staff is nothing to do with you but I didn't challenge it with the member of staff themselves and I, I still regret that now and think about how I could handle that differently and particularly I remember there being a medical student in the room at the time and I hate to think what they might have taken away from that so kind of is this normal is this what I just expect from healthcare environments but at the time I felt like I just didn't have the language or the confidence to kind of challenge this effectively I wonder if that feels familiar to anyone listening no. Hopefully through this chat today, we can talk about, you know, why civility is important, how we can approach similar scenarios in the future to ultimately help improve patient care. So Kath, I hope that might resonate with you a bit. And it'd be great to start with exploring what we mean when we're talking about civility and I guess by extension, incivility. 
It's very generous of you to share that example, Kat, and I'm so interested to hear how that stayed with you, that experience, even though it's something that happened in the past, and we can definitely come back to that later on. So in terms of a definition of civility, I suppose actually what I would say is that civility is a demand. For me, it's a demand that we use language that is polite, respectful, language that's responsible, restrained and principled. And we do that as close to 100% of the time as possible. And in terms of why it's important, fundamentally, the reason why civility is important is because when we are incivil to each other, our patients get worse care. And the reason that all of us come to work every single day, the reason we make sacrifices to our home lives and the reason why we do exams and, you know, progress through our training, despite the impact and cost that that has on ourselves is because we want to make people better. And it is crazy to think that we would go to this extreme hard work, particularly in the circumstances in which we're all working at the moment. And that we would then compromise patient care over something that we have absolute control over. So yeah, I think civility is something that we have an intrinsic ability to improve the care that patients get. And as a side effect, actually make sure that our colleagues and staff that we work alongside in our teams are having a better experience at work than when they're at work and we're being rude to each other. Thank you. That's a really great explanation of what civility is and what it means for our healthcare teams that we're working in. So you kind of alluded to the fact that civility is important for patient outcomes. And I'm really interested to hear a bit about the science of civility over the years and really why it matters. I suppose the first thing to say is that the science of civility is very, very new. Back when I started medical school in 2004, there really wasn't anything written about it. And I'm really grateful for the Civility Saves Lives movement who should be very heavily cited during this podcast because Chris Turner and his team have really worked very hard to collate all of the research that's most relevant to healthcare environment. And I would encourage anybody who's interested to go and search out their website and listen to Chris speak on this topic because he really is an unbelievable speaker and an absolute subject expert. And Chris talks about how between the years 1996 and 2000 that I think there are only 23 papers in the whole of the literature in any industry that were focused on civility. But then between 2011 and 2017, there are over 1,700 papers that have been published. And the reason why there's been this explosion in the science is because it really matters. And all of these papers are really pointing to the same thing, that this impacts on performance no matter what industry you measure it in. So if we take things on a timeline, the first kind of real landmark study that I'm aware of and that really kind of works in terms of my understanding of civility is a huge piece of research that was conducted by Christine Parath and Christine Pearson and was published in the Harvard Business Review. And they conducted a huge piece of research. So it was more than 14,000 people over 14 years who were interviewed and surveyed and studied with the intent of understanding the impact of civility on people who work in an office environment. And Prath and Pearson, they covered lots of different industries from kind of hospitality industries to marketing and advertising. Some accountancy, I think, was included. A huge range of office-based industries. And what they found was that when somebody receives an incivil or a rude comment, their cognitive ability drops by about 61%. I mean, it's a huge impact on the productivity and ability of people working in those environments. 
And then alongside that huge impact of kind of individual cognitive ability from a single episode of rudeness, you also get these horrendous other impacts that on average people become 75% less committed to their organization. I mean, for me, that translates as people finding extra time to look at improvement work in our healthcare system. And a 66% increase in anxiety as well about facing episodes that are difficult in the workplace in the future. And yet another thing, we've got enough to be dealing with in our workplace without introducing other reasons for our staff to be anxious and worried about coming to work. So Parath and Pearson, for me, were really the start of understanding this and, and why it was important. And from there, actually, healthcare really kind of started to take notice and started to understand, oh, well, if this is happening in a kind of office environment, what does that mean when we translate that in healthcare? And the King's Fund did a huge survey that was published in 2012, looking at teams and what makes a good team and what are the benefits to people who do work in something that they perceive to be a good team. So the paper wasn't really individually focused on civility, but that was a clear theme of the work that was written about. And actually what the King's Fund paper wrote about is that staff who report being part of a good team, so teams where there aren't episodes of incivil behaviours, actually their standardised mortality rates are lower, the staff performance is higher, you have an increase in staff health, so that's fewer staff taking days off because they're unwell, a reduction in patient complaints, so all of these really, really impactful, meaningful, measurable changes happening because we are not being incivil to each other. So from there, we really get to the nuts and bolts of it. I think at this point, healthcare is starting to stand up and listen and think, hang on, right, can we now prove beyond all reasonable doubt that rudeness as an individual behaviour impacts on patients? And Riskin and Eritz were the ones who proved this for me. And in 2050, they published a landmark randomised control trial that looked solely at incivility. So it was an, an amazing piece of research where they managed to put teams together, medical teams who were matched for their ability. And these teams were put into pediatric recess scenarios, so simulated pediatric recess scenarios. And they were really high pressure scenarios, so things like a young child with an acute exacerbation of asthma or an anaphylaxis, those kind of situations where, you know, I would be worried at work having to face that. I would need to think that me and my whole team were working at the very best of our ability to make sure that we could give that patient the best care possible. And and they measured the team's performance in these simulated scenarios, looking at individual people within the teams, but also looking at the overall team performance in terms of the care that the patients received. And half of the teams were exposed to an incivil comment. Now, What's I think really important about this piece of research is that the incivility is the defining feature of the randomized control trial. It wasn't a military dressing down. It wasn't like you describe in your example, Kat, of somebody really kind of taking to task an individual for their choices and behaviors. It was just a pass off comment that was made during the simulated resuscitation scenario like, or why are you doing it like that? We don't do that in my department. Or gosh, do you really need to look that up? That's the kind of information you should have at your fingertips. So the kind of comment that can so easily slip out that certainly I see day to day and at work. And then they kind of looked at team performance and the results are really terrifying actually. 
we can see that our team's performance is, you know, is measurable on a, on a normal distribution curve. But the variation you see amongst that curve from a great performance to a good performance or from a good performance to a poor performance, that variation will move between 40 and 60 percent because of incivility. So the teams receiving the incivil comment are much, much worse in terms of their performance than those who don't. And I don't know about anyone else listening, but if I am responsible as part of a team for resuscitating a sick child with an acute exacerbation of asthma. I don't have 40 or 60% of my performance to spare. I don't have the ability for somebody to come and be rude to me because I need all of my cognitive ability to make sure that me and my team are working in the best way possible to make that patient better. And then from Riskin and Eretz, we kind of moved to 2019. There's a huge piece of research that some of you may well have seen published in the BMJ. And the tagline was that anaesthetists get 33% less good at their job when a surgeon is rude to them. And that was a similar piece of research, which was conducted by Riskin and Eretz. And what I think is really frightening about that piece of research is not only have we stereotyped surgeons somewhat, nobody's published the research yet on whether surgeons get worse if their anaesthetists were rude to them. I'm not sure that would be the case. But also that the anaesthetists who got 33% worse at their job had no insight into the fact that they were performing less well than had they not received an incivil comment. So rudeness matters. Rudeness makes us all less good at our job and it happens in a really, really frightening, really, really measurable way and it's something that we can choose not to do. Thank you, Kath. That's a really clear explanation of the research that's been done. And I hope you agree that I think the case is compelling for the fact that civility is important in team performance and patient outcomes. And I think the really scary part for me is that people, you know, in that last study aren't recognising when their performance is dropping when someone is rude. So we are not good at recognising when our performance is being affected, which makes it all the more important that uh, raising awareness about how important civility is, is crucial. You're right, Kat. One of the things I haven't really clarified yet is how the rudeness impacts on the whole team. So we've talked about how the person receiving the rudeness in Parath and Pearson in their research, the person receiving the rude comments or the incivil action, their bandwidth drops by about 60%. But actually what we haven't talked about yet is what happens to everybody else in the room. So the research by Riskin and Eretz was really amazing and that identified not only the performance of the kind of team lead or the person receiving the rude comment, but actually the onlookers. So everybody else in that room, in that research scenario, also had a 20% reduction in their performance. And that's partly because, you know, your scenario when you talk about somebody being rude to that other member of staff in the room and how you notice that everybody sat around and kind of put their head down and was quietly getting on with work. And, and we do that. We don't want to become a target for the, the eye of Sauron, as Chris Turner says, or the person who, you know, if they've been rude to that person there, then maybe that's how they're going to behave towards me. So you know, everybody, the whole team, all of the onlookers become 20% less good at their job, as well as the person receiving the rude comment. And really interestingly, onlookers who witness episodes of incivility when they go around the corner or later on in the day, they carry that with them. And it means that they're 50% less likely to help a colleague who asks them for help. So, you know, I'm really struggling with this cannula. Would you be able to help me? And you're much more likely, 50% more likely to say, no, I don't have time now than you are to go and offer to help that person. And actually the patients, what's amazing is the patients also get less good at being patients because the patients feel anxious about the interaction they've seen by the team who are looking after them. And they get about between 15 and 25% less good at giving us a key piece of information that will impact on their care. So that's somebody you know, spontaneously offering information like, 
oh yeah and i had this rash on the front of my legs that was there for two weeks before everything else got bad or saying oh last time i had penicillin i came out with this rash and my doctor told me not to take it again and you know these are key bits of information that we need our patients to be helping us with so the key is civility it's hugely impactful when we do it to people and we should not be incivil to each other we shouldn't be robbing each other of that critical bandwidth for doing the best job we can for our patients but actually it's much bigger than that rudeness makes the whole team stupid yeah i think that's such an important point isn't it that actually it's amazing that clearly if someone's rude it's a big factor individually on you and i can definitely resonate with that reduction in bandwidth you know if someone's being rude to me it's all i can think about and i'm just so angry and what could i have said in that moment you know you're not thinking about all the other stuff that you've got to do but actually such an important point that also your team is affected and even the patient and I'm interested to have a think about, you know, what actually leads someone to be in civil? Is it that some people are just mean? You know, what's going on there? I mean, we all have different personalities, don't we, Kat? And I don't think people are just mean. I think we are all coming to work trying to do the best for our patients every day. And, you know, I'm the first to acknowledge that we are working in a really, really difficult environment. Maybe now's the time for me to come clean about the time that I've carried with me when I was in civil. It's never left me. And, you know, more than seven years down the line, I still feel very ashamed, actually, of the way I behaved. I was quite a junior registrar in ICU and I received a referral from the ward about a patient who I actually knew very well because he been in ICU for a very, very long time, I think approaching a year prior to having been discharged just 48 hours earlier. And it was a very junior doctor on the phone who was clearly very frightened about what was going on with this patient and about their physiology and was trying to recount what was a very complicated story. I'm sure anybody can understand any patients who've been in ICU for approaching 12 months that were likely to have a complicated clinical course. And I knew that quite a lot of the information that I was being told over the phone was incorrect at best or a lie at worst. And over the phone, I said, it's a little bit embarrassing just now that I know this patient better than you do. And that was kind of the start of an awkward pause when I then kind of went on to ask about the patient's current physiology and found out really that absolutely this patient did need to come back to ICU and needed fairly immediate intervention. And I would love the opportunity to apologize to that junior doctor because I'm really ashamed of what I said and it was absolutely not the right way to behave. But in terms of my day, I was hungry. I hadn't had lunch. It was 4.30 in the afternoon. My colleagues were late to get home and I was trying to get a handover from them. I was a bit overwhelmed. I was quite a junior registrar working in a very busy intensive care unit. And, you know, I was probably tired, you know, long shifts. And certainly since moving from a trainee rotor to a consultant rotor, I've really noticed the difference of having a predictable work pattern and how that impacts on how I feel getting up and going to work. You know, so there are lots of factors, aren't there? I think Chris Turner often talks about bandwidth and how as human beings, and especially as intelligent, high-functioning human beings who work in healthcare, we can usually manage to juggle between six and eight things every day. And that might be things like, oh, I need to fill up the car with petrol, or I need to figure out who's picking up the kids from school today. But, you know, it, it might also be, I must remember to chase those bloods, or I, you know, I haven't managed to dictate that clinic letter yesterday. But by the time we get to work, we're probably only operating with the space of three or four things and it is easy to become overwhelmed because of the workloads that we're all facing at the moment. I suppose my challenge is that, you know, whilst I am 100% cognizant of the challenges that we all face, I don't think that any of them are appropriate as an excuse for behaving in a way that's incivil because ultimately 
you know, you're just making everything worse. The patients are getting worse care. The staff are having a worse experience. I feel awful seven years on from that comment I made over the phone to that junior doctor who just needed help, you know, just was phoning because they were scared and they'd made a very appropriate referral with excellent information on the patient's current state, which, you know, that was ultimately what was needed for us to make a good decision about their care. So I think the key in where we're getting to is about, you know, not excusing those things that can lead to incivility, but working in a way that means we can recognize them. And actually, if we're building up and if we're getting into a state where that snicker of incivility might sneak out, that actually we take ourselves away from the environment because it's not going to help. Thanks so much for sharing that story. And I think it's really powerful to hear from you that actually recognizing those stressors and being able to, I guess, reflect back on that and think about, you know, in the future, how you can take yourself out of that situation is really important. And I think we all can recognize that we all have capacity to be in civil. You know, I was being a bit devil's advocate there. It's not that just some people are not nice. It's the fact that actually we work in very challenging environments and we have a lot of stresses put on us and really will pick up a little bit more about sort of recognizing that in yourself and others and how we can try and reduce the risk of incivility. So thank you. And I think that leads us nicely on to kind of thinking about, well, we've talked about, you know, why civility is important. And I think that's pretty compelling. But I think the next piece is really about how can we actually challenge incivility in the workplace? It's all good talking about it, but actually having the language and the tools to do this is hard. Yeah, it's so interesting. And the science isn't there yet. So we're working with kind of a lot of differences in terms of people's personalities, what they feel confident and able to say. Some people find it very easy to speak up in a situation, even when you've got more experienced staff around. And some people would find that very, very daunting and very challenging. So I think the first thing I would say is you've got to be working with language and in an environment that you're comfortable in. And I wouldn't expect anyone to feel like they need to put themselves in a position where they feel desperately uncomfortable. That's just another stress that nobody needs. But the kind of gentle challenge I would make is the standard you walk past is the one you accept. And going back to your experience there, Kat, and you've reflected about how that medical student might have felt having witnessed the behavior that you experienced with those two members of staff. I would really like to think that at some point in the future, there might be a medical student who thinks that's amazing that that person stood up to that incivil comment. And I want to be someone who does that in the future. So maybe you can kind of in a karma type way, bring it all the way back around at some point at a later date. And I suppose the key things that I would say is when I challenge incivility, which happens in my workplace, the first thing I do is everything is focused around the deeply held belief that everybody coming to work is trying to do the best for their patients every day. So actually at no point, and I say this with honesty and not sarcasm, at no point really do I think that, oh, that person's just a mean person or they're just a nasty person. There's always an explanation there. You know, they're having a bad day. They've got stuff going on at home. They feel that this behavior is necessary to advocate for their patients. I really think that the people that we work with are trying their best to do the best for their patients. So that presumption of good intent is something that I carry the very central belief within me. And then I think my next main strategy is to try and limit the impact of the incivility. So we talked about how not only the person receiving the rude comment has their ability reduced by that episode of incivility, but also the onlookers as well. And these conversations can be challenging. So I would try and limit the impact of onlookers, patients, relatives, other members of staff in terms of the incivility. And I think these conversations, these challenges should be made in private. 
And I think most people would agree with that. Then it's very variable and I think very personality dependent and very situation dependent as to whether something is challenged immediately at the time. There might be a way to do that where, you know, logistically you can take someone and say, oh, could I just have a chat with you for five minutes privately? But there are lots of situations in which that's not appropriate and it's not possible and that's okay. And finding an opportunity when things have calmed down and it's convenient being an important thing to have that conversation at a later date or even the same day but a few hours later I think is entirely appropriate. And then in terms of the language that I use when I'm challenging incivility is I you know really believe in what Chris Turner and the Civility Saves Lives movement talks about in terms of challenging with compassion so holding at the front of your mind the idea that everybody's coming to work to do their best and rather than saying you did this and you made me feel actually make it much more about me and my experience so I heard you say this today and this is how it made me feel and it's important to me that you know this because I don't want my performance and our team performance to be impacted because of the communication that we have. And usually I found that a really effective way of challenging incivility because by far the most common response from the person delivering the incivil action is, I'm so sorry, I never meant to come across like that. I was really stressed in the moment and it just slipped out. I really appreciate you letting me know and let me offer you a kind of heartfelt, no holds barred apology. And that is overwhelmingly the case. None of us, I think, come to work with the intention of taking our stresses out on each other. And I think often people appreciate the opportunity to apologize for it. Yeah, thanks. I love the term challenging with compassion. I've also heard you speak about asking people if they're okay, which I think is really powerful because as we said before, quite often it's because there's something else going on in that person's life that has impacted on them being in civil. So you've also mentioned sometimes starting with that approach, particularly maybe if you're witnessing. So maybe in my circumstance, I can reflect on it, the example I gave that actually that member of staff was under extreme pressure that day. They were very short staffed. There was loads going on in the ward. And that's probably what was going on that prompted this. And maybe if I had started this with, is everything okay today? That might have opened up quite a nice conversation and often brings out all of that stress and what's going on as well as sort of challenging it. What do you think about that? That's such a key point, Kat. Thank you so much for covering your right. And it's something that I often lead with when talking about these challenging conversations. You're exactly right. There's almost always a reason behind somebody having an incivil interaction. And I think it's really important that we give our colleagues the opportunity to offload if they want to. And asking somebody if they're okay is such an important and necessary intervention. And you're absolutely right. I think leading with that is key because it gives people the opportunity. It's a very kind of passive way of starting to get into that conversation and avoiding that risk of putting somebody in a position where they feel defensive or feel like they need to kind of double down on their behavior because they're advocating for their patients or because this has just got to get done. It really gives people the opportunity to say, actually, I'm not. I just need to go and have 10 minutes and, you know, go to the bathroom and have a cup of coffee and just take some time. So I completely agree. Thank you so much for highlighting that gap. And I think we touched on this before, but, you know, the situation that people are working in right now is extremely challenging. And I think we can all recognize what leads to people being in civil. And I just maybe want to talk about some strategies for sort of recognizing that in yourself, perhaps, and what you can do when you feel that kind of rising stress. What can you do to try and reduce the risk of that leading to incivility? 
Yeah, so there's two strategies that I think I find helpful. So I'll use this platform to talk about them. The first one is take five to save five. So take five minutes now to save five hours later. So I know that when I haven't had any lunch, when I haven't had enough water to drink, when I haven't gotten away from the clinical environment by one o'clock in the afternoon, that I become massively less productive. I become massively less empathetic. I become massively less coordinated. So even doing clinical skills, I notice I am less slick at, less tidy at, less good at. So I think there is really something important in noticing when it is a reasonable time to take a break and taking, even if it's just five minutes, away from the clinical environment if you can offload the means with which people have to contact you the more the better i've got some colleagues who go outside of the hospital and just have five minutes standing at the front door or going on a quick walk and i think those behaviors are really really healthy in terms of trying to deal with the stressors that can lead to feeling like you might act in a way that's incivil so take five to save five and it's something i actually say to my nursing colleagues i'm really fortunate that i work in a permanent environment now in my operating theater department and my icu and my nurses know this i say i'm just going to take five minutes now to save myself five hours later because I just need enough time to get my head together. And they are incredibly respectful of it and incredibly supportive of it. So I would encourage anybody to use that if you think it might be helpful. The other one that we use a lot throughout anesthesia in particular is the HALT. So HALT is an acronym that stands for hungry, angry, late or tired. And often, unfortunately, all four of them hit at the same time because you haven't slept. So you're running late and you haven't had breakfast and you're tired. So hungry, angry, late or tired, I think are kind of four things that we have control over that mean that we kind of arrive at work or we find ourselves at work in a flustered state and that can heighten our stress and make us more likely to behave incivilly. So I try to actively notice the days when I'm running late, times when I'm hungry, if I'm angry and if I'm tired and almost then even more actively build in those five or 10 minutes for myself to get away from the clinical environment at a time that's appropriate, get myself together, organize my thoughts and then arrive back kind of in a state that's fit for work. A lot like the take five to save five idea, just 10 minutes now will save myself a whole heap of tidying up from my incivil actions or my miscoordinated clinical skills later on. Thanks. I think that's so practical. And I think we can all recognize quite often you just think, I'll just do that next thing. I'll just do that next thing. But actually taking that five minutes and stepping away and having something to eat is so important and will make you more effective in the next few hours as well. So really good advice. I'm sure everybody who's listening will have heard of those things before. It's almost disappointing in some ways that I can't offer a golden nugget or a bullet of information as to, you know, ways that you can say I will never be incivil at work. But it really is the simple things that matter. And we are all coming to work to try and do our best and, and remembering that. And actually, there's almost no situation in which we can't afford one of our colleagues five minutes to go and have a bit of time. So, uh, yeah, I think getting these simple things right is certainly the kind of biggest change that we can make. Absolutely. And just sort of moving on to another section. So we've discussed how we can address incivility thinking about an individual basis, but I'm interested to know how we can bring civility into the wider culture of our organisations, because that's such an important part of civility in action, really. 
Yeah, so I suppose this is getting on to culture. It's a big thing, a big word, a big concept. And I have to, at this point, reference my husband, Paul Stretton, who's a leading thinker in patient safety and the culture of healthcare organizations. And if anybody would like to access his work, probably the best route to do it is via Twitter. And his handle is at PS Quantum Safety. Paul has written a manifesto, which I like to share. It works very well for me about the things that we can do in our healthcare systems and in our healthcare culture to try and, you know, improve ultimately the care that patients receive, our experience working in that environment and also thinking about how we can, you know, move things forward so that in 20 years time, maybe things look a bit different to how they do now. And civility and respect is one of the four key pillars of that. And we've talked a lot about civility and why that and how it is important for patient safety. But moving into the other aspects of culture, the the second pillar of Paul's manifesto is that we work in an environment that's about learning, not about blaming. And a learn, not blame culture is an approach that's predicated on learning rather than liability with the aim of trying to remove fear from making mistakes, as well as engendering trust and a willingness to accept responsibility. In 2018, NHS England released a new dust culture process for NHS Trust in England to follow. And it was a flowchart that was kind of focused around how we investigate adverse incidents that happen at work. And the first question as part of this flowchart was, was there deliberate attempt to cause harm? And then the second question in the flowchart, is there any evidence of illicit drug use or drug misuse? And I remember coming across that with Paul and Paul saying, it's outrageous that people who are coming to work every day to try and do the best they can for their patient, the first question they have to answer when something awful has happened at work is, are you a criminal? And then the second question is, are you on drugs? And it's totally backwards. We need to know and we need to hold it deeply that our colleagues and we are coming to work trying to do the best for our patients every day. And that presumption of good intent being present until there is absolutely clear evidence that that's not the case. There are some psychopaths in healthcare systems, but there are not very many of them. And I think it is right and safe for us to assume that's not the case and create a system whereby we can focus on learning. So that's kind of pillar number two of the Just Culture Manifesto of Paul Stretton. And one of the ways that we can really, really create a learning environment, and this is, I think, particularly relevant for those of you working in a medical environment, is about creating high challenge and high support cultures. So if you imagine a graph and on the X axis, we've got challenge and on the Y axis, we've got support We can then think about the relationship between environments that are challenging, the support that they create and the support that exists within that environment and the culture that then is bred in the people that are working in that environment. So if you've got an environment where there's a very, very low challenge and a very low level of support, generally what you do is you create a culture where staff feel very apathetic and not driven to improve the environment. And then when you've got an environment where there's huge amount of challenge and low level of support, which is what we maybe saw during COVID and maybe some of what we're experiencing just now, we create an environment where people get burnt out. So there's too much work, the work is of too great an acuity for us to keep up with and there's insufficient support in place. And then we've got environments where there's a low level of challenge, but a really, really high level of support. And But what's very interesting is actually in those situations, we create a culture of mistrust. And actually for an organization, that's often worse than having a culture of apathy because 
when people feel like they're not trusted to get on with the job and they're not trusted to develop a system or develop their training and improve in their roles, actually what happens is they tend to leave. And for an organization, it's much better to have an apathetic but stable workforce than it is to have a workforce with a really high turnover where there's a high level of mistrust. But what we should be aiming for in this learn, not blame culture is a culture of high challenge, high support. So, you know, environments where I come to work and I'm able to try that new clinical skill, but I'm going to do it in a way where I've got great support around me. I've had an opportunity to go and practice in the sim and do all of the book learning about the anatomy and the relevant, you know, bits of sterility or whatever it is related to that skill. I've then got a senior and appropriately qualified member of staff with me whilst I'm performing it, who's ready and available immediately. And then I learn a new clinical skill and I go home from work feeling brilliant that I, you know, develop my skills and add it to my training. And that culture, that high support, high challenge culture is called a culture of high performance or a learning culture. That's really what we should be aiming for. And that's hard to achieve in our current working environments. So they're the first two. The third pillar of the Just Culture Manifesto by Paul Stratton is around safety one and safety two. And I don't know, Kat, have you come across those terms before? Yeah, and I think I've been so interested to read about this. There's a a white paper out, which was a really good read. And the way we think about safety is a whole other podcast. But I really agree with the fact that we need to think wider about safety than just not focusing on everything, you know, things that have gone wrong, but actually focusing on what happens when things go right and what happens most of the time when things go right. And thinking about our staff as facilitators of things going well, as opposed to people that we blame when things go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I really like your summary of that. So safety one being the way that we work at the moment where we measure things that go wrong and then we try and make that happen as little of the time as possible. And our systems are all designed around safety one. We have Datexes and M&Ms and significant event analyses and fatal accident inquiries and all of these ways to look at what's happening that's wrong in our healthcare system. But the safety two is an idea that we look at like what goes well and we measure that and we try and make that happen as much as possible and that's a great term you came up with we look at our colleagues as facilitators of what goes well I, I like that that's really similar to my thoughts around the fact that everybody is coming to work to try and do their best every day and the benefits of working in a safety to culture are very very wide-ranging but the main one for me is that we have a better understanding of what our work is we don't just focus on the two percent of our performance that's really poor where things don't go well for our patients but actually we've got a much better understanding of the normal distribution of the quality of work that we deliver and i think that's healthier that's better for us to understand that you know we're not always doing things that are poor and that actually sometimes what we do is brilliant and we receive praise and thanks for that so safety one and safety two i think is really vital in terms of moving forward for our culture and then the last pillar is about systems thinking and this is such a challenge at the moment because our system is not working well for us and we are working in an environment that is incredibly difficult but the system thinking experts will always say that every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets so if you want to change the outcome you have to change the system and whilst all of us can make a mantra to ourselves that we are going to work with respect and civility that we are going to create high challenge high support environments that we are going to find opportunities to work with safety too and identify what goes well and spread that i think whilst we are working against a system that is going to be incredibly difficult but when i think about systems thinking really the key question i'm trying to answer is 
why did that decision make sense at the time? So when you're looking at an outcome for a patient, when you're trying to understand the process, starting from a place where you presume that the person standing there who was enacting those decisions, they were trying to make a good decision. They were trying to make the best decision they could for the patient because we are all coming to work to try and do the best for our patients that we can every day. And there was a reason why that decision seemed like a good one to that individual. And usually that reason is not because they were clinically incompetent. It's usually because there was vital piece of information missing. There was a workaround that was necessary because of some other factor elsewhere in the system. But we really need to work hard to understand that because if we're going to change the system, there's there's no point us trying to educate people to be better when we're already competent. Actually, what we need to do is get to the crux of this. Why did that decision make sense at the time? Yeah. So four pillars, four promises to live by and four things that I think that every time I walk in the front door of the hospital where I work that I take with me every day. I have a mantra every day that I am not going to be incivil because I want my patients to have the best care possible. I have a mantra to try and utilize the skills that I have to create high challenge, high support environments for the people that I work with. I practice safety to every opportunity I can and where I am involved in improvement work, I try and really focus it around the system and around understanding why that decision made sense at the time. And I hope that in a small way, the culture in which I'm working benefits from those promises that I make for myself and my patients. Yeah, so thought-provoking and I think the Just Culture Manifesto really resonates with me and I think it's something that we can all sort of bring to work ourselves as well as thinking about it from the wider culture of the organisation and you've explained really beautifully how you can practically think about that as well as thinking about the wider aspirations of altering the culture, so really important. So I hope today we've sort of convinced you that the evidence is really compelling, that civility is really important, not just for us working as individuals at teams, but actually about direct patient outcomes and patient safety. Thinking back to the cases that Kath and I have talked about, I hope you feel that you maybe have some of the tools and the language to see that both how we can challenge incivility with compassion and how we can recognise circumstances that might lead to incivility in ourselves and try and reduce the risk of that. So thanks so much for your time, Kath. It's been a really great conversation. And thanks to you all for listening to Clinical Conversations. Hope to see you next time. Thank you.